You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Good morning. I'm Leanna Tan. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I've got a good mixture of marriage, relationship, and global issues discussions for you. Today, we're going to dive into the minds of Dr. Manu Bhagavan and Kim Giles. But first, let's listen to Matt talk about what the American dream really is and if American parents are really living it. It is a tragedy to think that your children may not have hope in the American dream. And one of the things I think we might all want to pay attention to as a parent is, do you make, are you a very good example of what you want your children to be. You know, are you like the walking role model of the American dream? (laughs) Or are you just chasing your tail, running around, doing what you can to stay alive and to stay afloat? And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. But uh, if you notice, too, there's interesting research just showing that the number of kids getting married is dropping as well. And for a variety of reasons, which we've talked about on the show um, fewer are getting married, and they're waiting till later to get married, which is actually not a bad idea. According to some research we've uh, talked about recently, the best, uh, healthiest time to get married is 29 to 32, apparently, for the least likely chance of a divorce, 29 to 32 year olds. However, if you go talk to a lot of kids and, and try to find out why they're marrying later, it might simply be because our parents don't seem really happy in their marriage. And do you seem happy in the American dream? You know, after World War II, the dream was just to get back, to have a house, a white picket fence. Remember, it didn't even matter if they were all just track homes next to each other, cookie-cuttered out. They just wanted the dream. And I'm afraid... It's it's not always there, and it's easy for us to just throw it out because of the darn politicians. You know, they just, yeah. If they were just better. But I found um, in many regards, my hope comes from what happens in the walls of my home. My experience, my children's dreams can be easily... Um, Pushed, expanded, motivated, just by me, their father or their mother, we can impact those dreams. So what might really be one of the biggest drivers for why our kids, our teens, feel like the American dream is dissipating is because they don't have the tools. They don't have the support. They don't have the model. They don't have the vision for how it's going to happen. There is some interesting research, too, that states that the the child's income is uh, the best indicator for what will drive your child's income up is their father's income. So what the, the income, the job the father has is the best indicator for the job, the education level that the child will have. Now, that's a tough game when a lot of our children today don't even have fathers in their lives, Right. Again, I was raised with parents, divorced. My dad wasn't in my house, but he was in my life, and I'd go to his place of business every single day. And while I was there, that's how, that's how I was basically tended after school. And I would go work. You know, sure, slave labor. Sure, illegal in many countries, including our own. But I'd go work, but I learned about the, the importance of working And I even look in my own family with my own kids. They're not getting that experience of coming to my office and working every day. And I think that's interesting because as we we kind of evolve supposedly away from family businesses, you know, where you used to live above your bakery and you run down and run the bakery every morning and you you were very connected or you were on the farm and you were part of the farm – as we move away from those kind of lifestyles, um, I think we might be also losing some very simple ways to teach our kids what life's about. So one of the things I guess I would just challenge all of us to do 
make sure that you are making the idea of the family or the American dream, make sure you're modeling it. The dream can't just be getting a lot of money and then never seeing your dad or mom. That's not a great dream. And it's hard because you go get one of the best jobs. If you go become a doctor, some of those, you know, the hours as a doctor, they're horrible. And we don't see our mom or our dad. So just think about how you're modeling it. And uh, I don't want it to, I don't want this to be a downer for you, but there are kids. And inside of my home, I can sit down with my family. And once a week, we try to have a little family meeting, a little family time. And in that meeting, we try to talk about what's going on. And we set some real goals and, you know, you even have to push back and tell everyone we got to work. But just start helping them see that there are opportunities. One other thing I would just challenge all of us to do, and one of the fastest ways I've ever found for somebody to catch the vision of the American dream is they got to know what their talents are, what their strengths are. So make sure you're also teaching your children where they are gifted, what their talents are, their gifts are. And be guiding them. A lot of times they just simply need a guide on the side, which is one of the reasons we use that phrase on the show. Most of us just need a guide. So let's guide our kids to a healthier life. Huh. So maybe the American dream doesn't just mean making it as a doctor or living in a flat in New York as a major CEO of a company. Maybe living the real American dream entails inspiring the generation behind you to recognize their own skills and build healthy families of their own. Well, coming up, we'll have another thought-provoking discussion for you with Matt and Dr. Manu Bhagavan on global authoritarianism right after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Blaming the world's problems on a specific group or people, uh, it's an easy solution to many of the challenges we see today. And history has shown us that political leaders will sometimes use this tactic to gain power and to keep it. Uh, Here to talk more about global authoritarianism is Dr. Manu Bhagavan. He's a professor of history at Hunter College, uh, the City University of New York. He also is the author of the um, the book, The Peacemakers, uh, India and the Quest for, a, for One World. Uh, Dr. Manu Bhagavan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We hear more and more about uh, nationalism, global, and, the, and uh, authoritarianism, I guess, is, is a term that's now being hung on this nationalistic movement that we see going on in Europe um, in Germany now, I mean, now almost every major country in Europe is starting to have elections that it's that are paralleling a little bit of the Brexit movement and a little bit of Donald Trump movement. Talk to us. What do you see going on and and why exactly would you tie it and, and call it authoritarianism? Um, right. Well, thank you again for having me. Um, so as you said, uh, there uh, I think there are a number of similarities which are driving uh, the rise of populism, certainly, but uh, with, a, with a lean towards authoritarianism around the globe. So let's first start in Europe, where we can see the Freedom and Justice Party, Viktor Orban, in, uh, the Freedom and Justice Party in Poland, Viktor Orban in Hungary, the AFD in Germany, the Freedom Party in Austria. We can look to the Philippines, where we see Rodrigo Duterte, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, uh, Putin in Russia, Pauline Hansen in Australia, uh, Narendra Modi in India, uh, Shinzo Abe in Japan, Xi in China, and the list just goes on, um, of figures who are, uh, who are appealing to uh, base instincts uh, and um, sensing that their people have a sense of anxiety that they need to respond to. And, and the way to respond to anxiety, in their view, is by appearing strong mm. uh, uh, and trying to promote a certain kind of sense of security uh, and uh, defense of national interest. So um, I, I was looking at this trend and... Um, you can't explain uh, local forces may be part of the driving factors, but you can't uh, explain a global phenomenon only through local history or local politics. 
So what are the connecting factors? What could be driving this globally? That was the question that I asked. Um, And I basically came to the conclusion that there are three things, three interconnected things. The globalization of the economy, the globalization of conflict, and the globalization of crises. And these three forces, interconnected forces of the globalization, uh, trace back decades uh, to some changes that occurred um, in the 70s and 80s, but really took off coalesced in the 1990s. Um, And what do these three forces really mean? Uh, Well, the globalization of the economy is um, because of rewritten trade rules uh, and uh, particular kinds of um, uh, avenues for growth, uh, tax incentivization and so on. Companies really grew and competed with one another in the 1990s. It was kind of a death match for some of these companies. Mm. Many of them failed, but those that survived grew stronger and larger um, and ultimately grew into a kind of corporate force that extends beyond the reach of any particular government or country, even region, these huge multinational corporate interests, uh, which then are able to use these trade rules and tax rules um, to, you know, obviously for the benefit of their shareholders, but uh, to the detriment oftentimes of particular national interests. Um, so you have these, these, uh, these global entities which can supersede uh, the needs of people on the ground. Uh, and then you have the globalization of conflict. This is like the long war, the war on terror, where you feel like, uh, you know, terror actors or even drones, um, these, these kinds of uh, things can extend anywhere, can, can reach beyond any boundary. There's no secure space. Uh, and so you sort of multiply economic anxiety with an anxiety for personal safety. And then on top of that, the globalization of crises, where you have pandemics like Ebola uh, or Zika uh, and um, huge storms like Katrina, um, these things, again, threaten, reinforce the threat to personal safety. Mm. Uh, and, then, and then all of this leads the ordinary person to say, hey, I, I feel very insecure. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to get on with my life. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't have an economic future. I'm worried about my economic future, and I'm worried about my personal safety. And so instead of thinking about, hey, how do I go to school? How do I get a job? How do I think about uh, saving for my kids' college? You start to wonder how you get through the day, through the week. Um, and, and that, I think, is ultimately the core of what's going on. And you, it's... It really, it's it's a brilliant, I think, review because it's it's not just globalization as a general term, but it's globalization of of the economy. Company companies, multinational corporate corporations have more power than many countries and states. Um, but we also these are all the issues we've dealt with: Ebola and the borders, and now anybody can. Uh, cross over and, and, and uh, you know, infect your entire country. That was such a huge issue with the Ebola scare. It, I guess, and then you're saying, though, leaders, uh, Donald Trump, for example, and all these other leaders you cited, kind of backfill the, the, the gap of the pain and authoritarianism, strong-arming, heavy-handedness, a disdain for the press, um, becomes kind of an easy play. Well, what, what I think is going on is um, uh, when you have this sense of anxiety, uh, uh, populists are, are coming in and addressing this need. They're saying, listen, we hear you. Uh, that's one of the things that they're pretty good at, actually. They come in and they, they, make, they, they, they make an appeal to these base anxieties that people have. And, they, and their response is somewhat predictable, which is, um, look, how do we deal with these kinds of problems? We are going to uh, re-erect uh, tariffs, borders, walls. Essentially, the core of the issue is this. I think people around the world feel a distinct loss of sovereignty, that is, of control over themselves, uh, over their communities, over their countries. Uh, and uh, what, this, what this sort of global moment about is about in many ways is to say, okay, we hear that. So the response this is what I mean by predictably, is to say, how do we re-erect some of these Mm. protections that we feel have been lost? We'll appeal to your sense of sovereignty, and we'll address it by bringing it back. So um, now the the problem, as I see it, 
is that in essence um, the, the 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 solution that a lot of these uh, global leaders are offering um, is nostalgic. It's a nostalgic set of solutions. And, and in many ways, their success is driven by this force, this force of nostalgia, um, so that it's, it's a throwback to a different era. We can live in a secure country. We'll have proper border controls. We'll control who comes in and out of the country, what comes in and out of the country, um, and we'll be able to, therefore, live secure, safe, independent lives that maximize freedom. The problem with this, first, of course, is that in, in many ways this is imaginary, that, that those, those periods weren't there has there have been types of globalization uh, in different stages of history, um, but but the second problem to it, I think, is more fundamental, which is the particular forces of globalization that I described uh, are so large and so unwieldy that these nostalgic solutions aren't really going to be able to address them right. uh, because they're, they're solutions for a problem of a different era, and, and they, they don't deal with the kinds of forces that have been unleashed. As just one quick example, um, with regard to the globalization of the economy, which in many ways has altered industries, uh, has uh, driven job loss for certain older kinds of sectors, um, well, one of the things, that, things that's coming is an increase in automation, um, increased technological innovation around the world is going to result in uh, essentially automated tasks taking over for a large, a large number of existing jobs now in the service sector, um, in, in which case we're going to continue to see a downward trend in old, old forms of employment. Now, now, erecting barriers is not going to protect us from this, and in the event that somehow... Uh, companies were brought back from offshore and made only American companies, what would happen is the expense of the products that they produce is going to go up, uh, the cost is going to go up, and um, these, these companies would then essentially no longer be able to compete on the global market. So mm -hmm. for a range of reasons, this all becomes very, very difficult to, to, to pursue uh, and, and may in fact exacerbate the problems we're facing already. So authoritarianism uh, it's it's kind of an old stick that's not going to it's not going to be able to deal with the current issues. Do you sense? I mean, because now we're talking about Rex Tillerson, who is going to be the chief diplomat of the country, and yet is also the leader of one of these multinational countries, <laughs> corporations. Um, is it's it almost just seems like it's playing right into your theory. Um, well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I mean, I don't know exactly what uh, Mr. Tillerson would advocate, and um, just because someone uh, belonged to or, or, or led a particular company or corporation doesn't necessarily mean uh, that that they'll pursue a particular kind of policy. Um, one thing I just want to reinforce is uh, there are many good people, obviously, in all of these global corporate interests. Right. Um, this, this is not about individual people. These are about systems and about uh, a larger kinds of forces at play. Um, and so the, the corporation as an entity uh, is sort of beyond uh, any one individual. Mm. But, but now, in terms of Mr. Tillerson, I mean, obviously, there are things that one might criticize in his, in his particular record. Uh, in terms of what he will do, I think that remains to be seen, and whether or not he's confirmed also remains to be seen. Does it? I guess when we're when we're thinking about this, um, you, you do talk about kind of the each each of these countries that you cited. They also have parochial issues. They have local issues that that almost get folded into this greater scheme um, and 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 theme. I guess it might be a better approach to it. Is it because? The, there's going to be a delay before th th these policies, these ideas, these kind of authoritarian approaches might still seem like they're working, even though long term they may not be working. Right? That these these, these people are still could be uh, elected, lifted, uh, bolstered, and strengthened by using an authoritarian approach, even if it's not working long term. 
Right. So let, let's just make a distinction between populism and authoritarianism, first of all. I mean, I, I think the populist side is what has the short-term appeal, which is uh, the, 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 the sense that we're going to move swiftly, we're going to be strong, we're going to take assertive action. Um, the authoritarian side is it comes from uh, uh, a resistance to criticism, uh, 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 disgust with dissent, uh, um, a rejection of dissent, uh, attacks on the freedom of the press, uh, things of this sort, as well as um, a leaning on people to blame. So xenophobia and jingoism, uh, racism, these kinds of things where you say, look, here are the problems we face, and the problems are terrible, but they're really someone else's fault. Mm. Uh, and then once you sort of lay blame at someone else's fault, then it's about targeting that community to so or, or those communities in order to solve the problem. This is true, around the, again, around the, around the globe, uh, where uh, some particular community faces the blame for what's going on uh, in, in a larger region. Um, and that's one way to shift uh, the goalposts for leaders in power who are unable to deal with these global forces. It's, it's really the fault of these, these other people. Um, so uh, that, 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 in a nutshell, as I see it, remains one of, the, one of the problems, but also one of the reasons for the short-term success, because it's about laying blame as opposed to taking responsibility. Mm, yeah, that's a great, that's, a, I think, just great insight. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Manu Bhagavan, and uh, when we come back, I want to get into um, a little bit of, of how we counteract this, how we make sure that uh, this, this present-day populism and, and authoritarianism doesn't take over if there's anything we can do. Also, find out more about his book, The Peacemakers, India and the Quest for One World. Uh, Dr. Bhagavan also is a, a teaches seminars on Gandhi. I'd love to know what uh, Gandhi would think of all of this as well. well. We'll find out more. Stick with us, folks, helping you understand what's going on in the world, but also become a change that we need to become. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Bhagavan teaches about how in the world today, it seems like there's a growing sense of anxiety in people and world leaders' knee-jerk reactions are to give their people a sense of security by making themselves seem stronger, leading to seemingly this rise of global authoritarianism. So let's jump back into the rest of that interview to hear about how we can avoid falling into this authoritarian trap. So how do we make sure we don't fall into the trap the fears of globalism, the fears of these now kind of seemingly never-ending wars of um, the global economy that's not going to turn around because of technology advancement. I mean, there's a lot of issues. And then global crises, we see they seem to be coming more and more regular uh, or regularly. What? How do we not fall prey into just following lockstep? Uh, an authoritarian. Um, okay. Well, I'd, I'd say that there are uh, th three parts to this. Um, the first is that um, I think our moment, as I said uh, in the first segment, um, is driven by a, a, a longing for uh, a time that's been passed. That is, that nostalgia is really at the core of our present political and social the good old days yeah the good old good old days how do we go back to when things seemed simpler easy and safe um, now nostalgia as a force is extremely powerful uh, it's alluring because um, you know it we, we romanticize the past uh, we think about it, we highlight in our minds all of the best parts about it uh, and so it becomes idyllic uh, and, and, uh, and, and simple. Uh, now, that is a powerful, very powerful force that I think uh, contemporary politicians are tapping into. So that's the first part. Um, now, how do we 
overcome that? Well, I, I, I think of it sort of this way. Um, you know, when, when, when someone loses a loved one, I, I have, and I, I'm sure mm-hmm. many, many other people unfortunately have, um, you know, I, I, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the most challenging things to go through. Um, and depending on, on uh, uh, circumstances, you know, one can really go down deep um, into this into this sense of loss of the past. I did. Um, and then uh, you, you start to think more about the days that were behind you than about your, your current day and, and about moving forward. It can, become, it can become kind of a trap in that sense. Um, now, how do you eventually overcome loss? Well, different people have different ways for doing that. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, though, I think it's about recognizing that we have something to live for and that we have to think about a creative future um, in which we all matter, each of us matter, and that each of our peers matter as well. So in this sense, uh, what, do, what can politicians do? Um, well, it's about crafting uh, a succinct set of policies and an overall coherent message that addresses this sense of uh, we're in this together and we're going to build a future for everyone together. I think mm. many people in the heartland of the United States uh, and in c- countries around the world really feel like they haven't been listened to, that their communities are falling apart, that their factories are closing, that their life isn't getting better. And whatever you know, statistics might say, they aren't feeling it personally. And what they really want to do is feel heard. They want to say, listen, we're suffering. Um, we're, we're, we don't have it easy, and why, don't, why, why isn't anyone hearing us? Um, and what can we do about it? Um, so the, so uh, the politicians need to respond, I think, in this way. Everyday people like us, what can we do? Well, the first thing to do, I think, is to turn to our neighbors and say, we hear you. Mm. Um, we're, we're a little too atomized and isolated by social media. We, we, have, we, we, we like to have virtual conversations instead of real conversations. Um, so we need to sort of uh, – social media is fine. It, it's a good thing. But we need to also pull off of that a little bit and reconnect with, with our communities, with our neighbors, with our friends. And, in fact, I think one step that every individual can take is also to try to reach across to people um, that we don't normally talk to, whoever that might be, in, in whatever sense that might be, um, and, and grab a cup of coffee. Let, let's get to know one another again and remember that we all have common purpose um, whether these common purposes are in the context of towns or whether these uh, common purposes are in, the, are in the context of regions or regional communities or cities or states or nations. Hmm. It's so, such and, great and advice. I, yeah. And a basic, right? I mean, it's, it really is. It's kind of get out of your computer room and go become a community again. Go talk as a community. Right. So that's that's stuff that local townships can do. You know, how do we how do we do community building organize? uh, Sorry, community building uh, uh, events. How do we get get our folks out of their living rooms um, and and into the public square? How do we get us us talking to one another again? You know, and, and I add two more things to this. One is we can have community forums instead of having debates, which is has sort of. Uh, descended into a to a euphemism for shouting matches, mm-hmm. where no one no one's mind is really changed. It's just about scoring points and 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 you know sort of horrible name calling. Um, we need to have conversations. We need to have public conversations about issues, where the point of the conversation is let's find some common ground and let's try to agree on three points at the end of this hour or whatever it is, something like that. I think is is one way forward. Uh, uh, and then I think uh, we have to do our own part. As I said, we, ha- we have to play uh, constructive roles in, in looking for uh, common ground. Is, I mean, it's, is this, a, this is where leadership could backfill. Uh, but I guess, too, this is why if it's too easy to move from populism to authoritarianism, you might then – you stifle all conversation a lot. I mean, we are a lot of the response to this is openness, conversations, acceptance, understanding, looking for common ground and agreement where I guess authoritarianism would shut that down and just take us to days of old. Right. Um, well, presumably um, uh, authoritarianism 
ultimately sort of seeks to, to, to protect itself uh, and, and to continue in perpetuity. Um, but, but uh, I, I, I mean, in the sense that it's about a need, uh, in, in a sense that populism is about sort of recognizing uh, a crisis that people are feeling and, and presenting a set of solutions, however flawed it might be, um, that's, I think, the bigger thing to focus on. When those solutions fail, that's what leads to authoritarianism. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and so I think... I think we have to be prepared for that and offer alternative solutions, all of us. Um, and and this, is not a, this is not a partisan right. issue. or this, this is something all of us can offer constru- constructive solutions. But most importantly, all of us can reach out to communities, uh, say, uh, across the line or, 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 or with whom we, we uh, don't ordinarily uh, communicate with and, and, and try to build, build up levels of trust and respect. Again, trust and respect, I think, are fundamental to the functioning of a healthy society. And as as one who has um, studied extensively Gandhi, and has you yourself have written a book on peace, what what would Gandhi be teaching us? The same thing that um, you're teaching I, us? I think so. I don't know. I wouldn't put my name in the same sentence as his, but uh, I, I think ultimately, yes. I mean, you know, Gandhi was someone who saw um, the good in all people, literally. Um, you know, he, one, one of the things that he never did was to, to, to argue that British people who were, who were the, the British state-controlled India in a colonial relationship, he never argued that British people were bad. Um, and even, even government officials who, who were enacting policies that had terrible consequences, mm. he never argued that any of them were bad. He argued that they were fundamentally very good people, but that they themselves were, were suffering as a consequence of these larger systems. And what was key was to understand that um, and, to, and to sort of uh, see the humanity in all people. And when you did that, um, you lifted everybody up and, and we grew together. Yeah, we don't need to demonize, do we? Right, exactly. There's, and there's, I, I just watched the the movie on Gandhi that he was just he was the person that would just walk right into the melee and try to understand what's going on and communicate and be with the people at the but then be with the decision makers but then you know go to the ground level and start communication conversations. Right. Well, that, that's another thing. I think, I think uh, you know, people talk about these bubbles, politicians, Washington in a bubble, uh, our cities in a bubble, rural America in a bubble, and that's the problem. Uh, we're all in bubbles, mm-hmm. uh, and we've got, to, we've got to break these bubbles and, and make a real effort to get to know, to, to get to, to, to be there. Um, and people in Washington need to, you know, I mean, get out of Washington a little bit and, and get back to talking to different kinds of communities and really understand them. And that is, the reverse is also true. Um, you know, there, there are there's poverty and there's working class issues uh, across all different communities and, and races and, and regions. We have to we have to find that common issue again. Love it. Well done, Dr. Manu Bhagavan. Thank you so much. I love how Dr. Bhagavan said in order to avoid this trend of global authoritarianism, it really boils down to just seeing the humanity in people and helping raise our own communities. That reminds me of a segment with Kim Giles where she and Matt talked about personally taking the opportunity to rise to a state of trust in every situation, not just on a global leadership basis, but on a personal basis in our own homes and in our everyday lives. So I'll play that segment for you in just a minute. But first, we're going to listen to Matt debunk a few marriage myths right after this break. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh, resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's 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 essential. 
to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant, historically we'd say you got to marry you got to marry the man marry the man that you know makes it legit now we've got a legitimate thing going on here and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole and the problem is it's not the reality they're finding they're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles so it's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one on one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What what is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's these are all important parts of the decision, and. There are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense. And I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian supported cultures and environments because you had a tight knit group maybe more around you. But in inner city, difficult, financially strained situations – it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a in a marriage um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the, the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. <laughs> Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction. 
but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential infections and issues in our environment are better for your for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, women who were be- ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researchers said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! You could be, and you may need to be. It's your life, and joining us today to help us figure out how to be a hero in your current situation, Kim Giles. Uh, Kim is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching, popular life coach, author, speaker, named one of the top 20 advice gurus in the country by Good Morning America, and uh, she has now been named as one of the interstellar uh, top gurus ever in this part of the galaxy. Yeah, you've stretched that to the point you're running out of ways to go bigger, Matt. No, no, I know. I need bigger. I need to. I need bigger words. <laughs> Kim, how are you, my friend? Good. Talk to me about how to be a hero in my current situation. Well, I've noticed over the years, and I'm sure you have too, Matt, with your coaching clients, that every once in a while they find themselves in the situation dealing with people that are behaving so badly. Oh, yeah. But instead of being pulled in. And, and reacting and joining them in the mud, right? Yeah. They rise. And in that moment, they choose to take the high road. Oh. And it takes heroic effort, And it's right? amazing, right? To overcome that yep. ego that wants to just 
slash back, right? But they they do it and they yeah. take the high road, and I'm like, you were heroic. You did it. That that is the hero of your story. It really is when all you would, you could justify all day long behaving bad. That's cool. But you choose not to, and you choose to rise and and behave better. And we all have opportunities every day, right, to do that. It, it's and it's it's almost like you don't have to want it. You don't have to want the moment. You could have a curveball thrown at you, but it's still an opportunity to rise. Yeah. Well, or fall and wallow and blame and hate. You can pick either one. In every moment, those are your two options, yep. pretty much. And and I simplify them a little bit from my clients that there's only two states you can be in. You can be in a state of fear where you're in a defensive position, protecting, promoting, trying to get what you need to quiet your fear. Mm. Or you can get in trust that you're fine, that you're safe, that your value is enough and that you have nothing, you need nothing. There, there's no need to defend. And from that trust position, you can actually show up with love and and really be the hero in that moment and not make it about you. Yeah. So you've got these two choices, and and really they're very clear. You know, <laughs> you yeah. know which is the high road and the low road yeah. in each of but those it's, moments. But it's the, and they're the difficulty. It's sometimes it's easier to just go downhill, right, and just follow the fluids downhill. Always easier. But you're saying you might need to exert, make a choice, step up. Well, that's the key. What you just said is make a choice because for most of us. 95% of the choices we make, we make subconsciously. Yeah. 95%. We don't even. We're not choosing. Mm-mm. We're just reacting. And we've all got this subconscious programming that drives most of that behavior. And most of that subconscious programming is fear-based. Yeah. And in a place of protecting and promoting you. So it's not going to be good behavior. And the thing that makes our subconscious programming so powerful is that it's so fast. Oh, the second something happens, you're in respond or react mode yeah. before you've had a chance to think. It's automatic. It is. And then then it creates an automatic. So you're already reacting and you already have a feeling and the feeling seems validated because you're feeling it. Like like your feelings are ever wrong. Yeah, you're always right about what you feel. And so, I mean, I feel ticked and I deserve to go off here. And by by the time you're down the road half a block, you're hijacked and you're on the wrong bus. Totally. But you don't know it. And then then you you, you look stupid to own it. At that point, you have to apologize. Okay, I reacted badly, which, to be honest, how heroic is that? Mm. If you can stop yourself in mid-bad behavior and say, wait a minute, I let my subconscious programming go here and I reacted bad. And and apologizing in that moment, I think that's huge. That's powerful. Heroic. Absolutely. Yeah. Imagine for your kids to see that. Whoa, Dad just stopped in the middle of a ramp, a, a, a tirade, a tangent, and just owned it. And grew up. Holy cow, Dad just yeah. grew up. And don't you think in, we think that we lose face if we do mm. that? But in reality, people are going to respect you more. Yeah. We did a segment a while back, you and I, about the the ways lying to yourself might actually serve you. Yeah, right. And and this, this is something that can help you change your attitude. So I had a situation where we, we were in a hurry somewhere. We'd packed up and got in the car and left. And 15 minutes down the road, my daughter realizes she left her homework back mm. there. Mm-hmm. And we have to have it. We you have to have go back. It. Right. And I was not happy. Patience is not my thing. Now yeah. I'm way behind schedule. And I realized my ego wants to be kind of mean to her about it, make her feel bad, right. really behave immaturely about having to go back. And so I chose to believe that there's purpose and meaning in what happens that there was going to be a multi-car accident down the road. Mm-hmm. And that daughter just saved our lives. By forgetting her homework. That's, <laughs> and I know made up some story. it's delusional, but, but it, I was so nice about the whole thing. Right. And, and I, you know, asked her to really be careful next right. time. But, you know, because you're making you it up anyway, 
you really are. We're making we're we're we, making we story. have to ne- negatively interpret Everything. and generate a story. So if you're if you're making it up anyway, do it intentionally. Skew it. Yeah, because really our perspective on everything is story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That we've created. We just are creating it subconsciously again instead of actually consciously choosing a story that would help us have less fear and more mm-hmm. love. Well, you could have you could have taken it 10 different directions to try to get more of a healthy story in there. She probably didn't do this intentionally. She would have loved to have not forgotten not her have word. not forgotten. Right. And so you can add more to the story just by consciously looking for more information. Or I could have just decided to see this as my classroom today yeah, to see patient. how I could be more loving and wise. And, and right. you know, our kids are here to teach us how to, to grow us. Mm. I mean, I think there's much the teachers as we are. Absolutely. Them. And boy, they're good at triggering all your faults and bad behavior. So That's you can huge. work on them. What would you say then as we wrap up, Kim, what's the one thing that we can do this second to start taking our story back and getting more conscientious and conscious about what we want to become? In every moment, what is the love-based choice of behavior? And and you'll know immediately your ego doesn't want to do that one. It wants to be right and yeah. angry and and justify, but the love-based choice is the right one. And if you choose it, you're going to end up feeling so good about yourself afterwards. Trust me, it's worth it. And you'll feel love. You will. Beautiful. And happy. Beautiful. That was awesome. Lots of great information. I think some of my favorite quotes and takeaways from today's program were that in relationships, just like immunization shots, we need differences to give us something to fight against and make us stronger. That every moment you should ask yourself, what is the love-based choice to avoid defensive responses? And that apparently the best age to get married is 29 to 30, which is unfortunate for people like me who got married last month at age 25. Oh, well. Well, thanks for listening in. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Matt Townsend's Wise Words. 